The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we are continuing in our study through the book of Hebrews. It's called Never Better. Uh, the main thrust of the book of Hebrews is um, the, the author is responding to a tendency for uh, Christians in that time who had a background in Judaism, responding to the temptation that they had as a result of persecutions, difficulties, and then just to some degree, probably human nature, uh, this temptation to go back in part or in whole to trusting the Old Testament sacrificial system instead of putting full faith in Christ and his finished work as the final sacrifice for sin. There's themes of the supremacy of Christ and the new covenant that we have through him uh, woven throughout the book. And uh, as that that led up to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 last week, uh, commonly known as the Hall of Faith. And uh, we're moving now into some more application as the first Nine and a half to ten chapters were primarily building the case for the supremacy of Christ and his gospel. We're now moving into uh, the, the back end of the book that has some application, which is incredibly helpful. Uh, as I said, we spent the last two weeks in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a relatively well-known chapter. And chapter 11 introduced us to the profound truth that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's a big deal. That's a big statement that we should ponder and care about what it means. It then proceeds to take us through the arc of biblical history, showing us that every person who fulfilled their purpose in God's plan of redemption did so by faith. Amen. Uh, Now, it is important for us to have Hebrews 11 in mind as we move into Hebrews 12. And a big clue pointing us to that reality is the first word we're going to encounter in Hebrews 12, which is, therefore. That tells us that now the implications that we're moving into are a result of what we just read in Hebrews 11. And so that's why I wanted to make sure we were caught up. Perhaps you weren't here for the last couple weeks or haven't caught up yet on those sermons. Uh, Hopefully you're familiar enough with the chapter. I don't have time to read that one and this one. But um, what he's going to lead us through now, the the idea is, you know, when, when the original audience of this letter would have received it, they probably would not have uh, broken it up over 26 weeks like we have. They probably would have sat down in a gathering of God's people and read it through from front to back. And so they maybe wouldn't have needed, for them, it was, it was just a continual stream of thought. So it's, it's just important for us to make sure we keep in our minds the, the flow of thought and, and how these ideas build upon one another. Uh, It'll make more sense and help us make sense of the application. So I hope you're in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 together. Here we go. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Praise God for his word. I'm so thankful that we take seriously the truth uh, here at Love City that much of our understanding of doctrine and theology, truths about God, comes from the preaching of God's Word. That's why the preaching of God's Word is, is the center point of our gatherings each Sunday. But we also realize that it is through uh, worshiping together in song that oftentimes doctrine and theology is woven into our hearts and minds. And uh, if you think about the song we sang before we read these verses, it is, I mean, almost I could sit down. Because a major point here is that He is a good Father. And if we trust in his sovereignty and his goodness, his power and his goodness, if we can grab a hold by faith of those truths, man, we can navigate just about anything. But let's break into it and, and get down into the nitty-gritty here, okay? Verse 1, we're going to work back through verse by verse. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, okay? So this, this idea of a great cloud of witnesses, it's been understood two different ways. Uh, it, it may be one or the other, and it might be both. It's, it's kind of hard to know for sure. But the two ways that this has been understood is, and some of it may just have to do with your perspective as you read the sentence, right? Because it says this cloud of witnesses. One way that people have thought that that is, or to explain that, is that what we have in the Old Testament saints, the specific ones given to us throughout Hebrews 11, but then also broadly, all who have walked with God by faith, is basically, and there's kind of a sports analogy through here, so you guys know I'm not the biggest sports ball fan, but I can't stay out of it today. There's, the sports analogy is going gonna, is gonna, to push itself into the forefront because that is really, this idea of a race is, is what the author uses to, to explain these ideas. And so uh, the, the, the first way it's been seen is that Basically, if, if you imagine that us running this race and following Jesus, that there's a, a cloud of witnesses around us. So imagine almost a stadium or that those who have gone before us are, are, are witnessing, watching what it is we're doing. And so since they're watching, I mean, have, have any of you ever understood this idea that, that maybe we act a little different? Uh, you know, anybody ever worked out by yourself in the gym versus working out with a partner? 
Has anybody ever experienced those two different dynamics? I know I have, and when the temptation comes to kind of give up halfway through a set or, man, I really don't want to squat one more time or whatever it is, when there's someone there watching, someone there helping to hold me accountable, that absolutely can be the thing sometimes that pushes through uh, that, that temptation towards slothfulness. And so th- that's one way people have kind of understood this idea. The other way to see this word witnesses is that these Old Testament saints, those that have gone before us, that they have run the race and shown us how to finish it. Okay, so like the the Greek word for witness shares a root with the word martyr. And so the the idea would be like, if you're trying to determine the truth of a matter, uh, you, you may bring in a witness who saw what happened or knows a lot about the subject, right? Think about a courtroom. We got this case, we got to figure out what happened here. What do we do? We bring in witnesses, witnesses who either have expertise in the subject or saw for themselves what happened, and so they can speak to it and bring confidence to everyone else in the room about the details of of what happened. And so thinking of these Old Testament saints and those that have gone before us in that way, uh, we we can glean encouragement from the fact that they have gone first. And in some ways, the idea being that They're proving the point that God is faithful. Go back through Hebrews 11. Think about the things that uh, all of these saints did, that Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and and Rahab and everybody listed. Think of the things they were navigating and what it was had to be overcome by faith. And that's, to, to me, that's probably based on the context and that we're flowing out of Hebrews 11. I my personal opinion, if you want it, is probably that second understanding makes more sense. That it, for, us to, for us to see them as witnesses, as, as proof that God is faithful, that he's good and powerful and he's for us, I think that also kind of fits with what we're going to be continually encouraged by as we move through these next verses. That's not to say, because um, there's some complication in thinking about the idea that people who are with the Lord in eternity, like whether or not they're, they're watching and have intimate knowledge of everything that's going on here on earth. That opens up a big theological can of worms. This is kind of one of the few verses that would give you that idea. And uh, for me, I don't think that's probably the, the best way to see it. However, there are people that do, and if you do, that's perfectly fine. Okay, so um, these, these witnesses, they've run the race, they've shown us how to finish it. <clears throat> and... Uh, the, the warning that we're given, as so therefore, since we have them, and, and maybe it is that they're watching, maybe it is that since we have them, we have proof, we have evidence that if, if we are able to run this race with endurance and trust God in the midst of it, that, that we will come to the finish line. Maybe it's all of that, but because we have that, what should we do? Because we have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also. Lay aside, and even that language leads me to kind of that second understanding. Since they did, let us also, as they did, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And so it's interesting, we see here two words, encumbrance and sin. Most of you probably aren't running around saying encumbrance in your day-to-day um, vernacular, but I don't know that it's that hard of a, it's an obstacle, thing in your way, right? Or a weight is really, when you get down to the root of the word, it's a weight. It's something that would slow you down from the progress that you're trying to make. And so I don't want to spend a bunch of time trying to 
name encumbrances, potential encumbrances, and then, and then break down the specifics of how these truths interact with those, I, I think just to give you an idea of what some of these things could be, because it, he says encumbrances and sin. So there's a distinction made here. Is sin an encumbrance? Yes, but the author separates them. And so we're talking about two different things. So encumbrances could be things like doubts and fears, insecurities, distractions, even if those distractions are not explicitly sinful, sometimes those can be an encumbrance to us running this race of faithfulness and moving forward towards that, that finish line in Christ. And so uh, I, would, I would submit to you, as we work through the text today, that a, a good thing to take before the Lord in prayer is, of, of course, I, I want to avoid sins that entangle me, but Lord... Would you help reveal to me what may be encumbrances to me? What are, what are weights that might be slowing me down that I'm not even aware of? And I believe that's a, a faith-filled prayer. Uh, I think it's a humble prayer, acknowledging that that is very possible. And I believe God will answer those kind of prayers. And so we've got encumbrances and we've got sin. Okay. And so what, what does that mean? Well, this could be, it talks about sin that so easily entangles us. It could be sin broadly. It could, be, it could mean all sin. I think, I think at one level it, it does. But uh, having just left a chapter focused on faith, it, it's been suggested that, in, in the author's mind, that unbelief is the sin which so easily entangles us. That there's a specific sin in mind, that being unbelief. And I, I already said, I, I think it, it could be broad, it could be specific, but even if it's specific, if unbelief is the sin in mind, then it's still broad because at one level, all sin sprouts from the stump of unbelief, which is rooted in pride. And I could spend a long time unpacking what that means, but I'll give that to you. If that, if that caught your ear, write it down, think about it, and uh, if you want to talk about it this week, reach out, I'd be happy to. There's, there's a lot that could be there, but really... Uh, all sin at one level is unbelief. And all, all unbelief really is rooted in pride. I just want to point out, too, that it says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, to me, is precious, that that's the language, and I'll tell you why. There have been many who have despised the fact that God chose to inspire human authors to write his word. But imagine if it had all been transcribed by his own divine hand, just God brought his finger down and wrote the entire scripture, you know, in, in the side of a mountain. Could have done it that way, right? Or it could have all been written by angels. There's lots of ways God could have chosen to give us his word. But if God had written it himself, or angels had written it, and there's, I think, some that think, oh, well, that would be so far superior to the, the supposed problems that there is with human authors being inspired by the Holy Spirit, all we would have, if it was God or angels that wrote it, is, is things, if, if we were talking about the same subject here, it couldn't say, let us. It would have to say, you must do this, or you must not do this, right? And why does that matter? Well, we would have no opportunity, friends, to be encouraged by the fact 
that the very ones God used to write his holy word were still in the process themselves of running their race, and they were in need of endurance. We see that in the words, let us. Let us cast off every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us. I'm in this with you. Even as an author of Holy Scripture being used by God in this incredible way, let us run this race with endurance. There's great encouragement in that reality for us. And why? Well, because when the hellish voice of condemnation tries to whisper in our ears that we are too vile or too filthy to be loved by our holy king or, or to be any use to him, the witness of the very word of God itself shouts back, shut up, liar. The very witness of the word of God, if, if the lie of the enemy is, you're too far gone, you're, you're too vile, you're too filthy. Yet we, we know God used Paul to write scripture, the persecutor of the church. We know that God used Peter to write scripture, the Christ denier. We know that God used Moses to write scripture, the murderer. The lie that we are too vile, too filthy to be loved or used by God. The word of God itself and the fact that God chose human authors to write it pushes back against that lie. This idea of running with endurance, this, this idea of endurance, it's a major focus of this chapter. And we're being encouraged to face the sober reality that following Jesus and living for him is not going to feel like rolling down a gentle slope on roller skates. Okay? And if you want to, for that analogy, if you want to imagine uh, roller skates with the four wheels, two and two, or roller blades, it's your choice, okay? Imaginer's choice. You can imagine roller blades or roller skates, but a big point of this chapter is that's not what the Christian life is like. A nice, gentle slope that you can just kind of coast in neutral. What we're seeing here is that there will be strain and the need to exert effort. And that can be confusing because oftentimes we try so hard, rightly, to work against the tendency we have as humans to see our worth before God or our righteousness before God as tied to our works. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. But then it's, but then it's hard to then take a chapter like this that says you need endurance. You are going to have to run. This is not going to, it's not that God saves you and now we just coast along gently. Well, how do I, let me, let me try to help. The finish line of the race is not salvation. Salvation is when God rescues us from a prison cell of sin and death and puts us on the racetrack. That's salvation. The finish line is fulfilling our purpose as his children and crossing into eternity with him. Emphasis on with him. And that will continue to be emphasized. <laughs> okay? So hopefully, I'm sticking with the race analogy because the author uses it, and we're going we're gonna to try to think through these things with this kind of racetrack idea and us being runners on it. The finish line is not salvation. We are saved by grace 
through faith in Christ. And that's what puts us on the track to begin with. The finish line is to be fully and finally restored to relationship with him in eternity. Verse 2, let's look at that together. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This author is fond of reminding us that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. An idea that reinforces the truth that Jesus' work for our salvation is done. It went so far as to compare the high priests of the old covenant and the fact that there were no chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. Uh, there was always work to be done. There were always sacrifices to be made daily and weekly and monthly and yearly. Uh, but Jesus finished once for all through his final sacrifice all the work that needed to be done for us to be saved. And so we just see that idea uh, given to us yet again. Verse 2, what, what do we see? That we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, so author and perfecter. Jesus built the track and he ran it first. He's the author and the perfecter. Some of your translations will say the author and the finisher. Probably actually that's more commonly, more translations say it that way. Which helps with the race analogy. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus built the track, ran the race, and finished it. That's part of Jesus' great work, is that he ran the track that all of us are going to need to run. As an example. So in Christ, we have the only truly perfect example of endurance. The only truly perfect example. We have some great examples all throughout Hebrews 11, but they're not perfect examples of what it looks like to run with endurance by faith. But Jesus is a perfect example. And it's fine for us to have in our minds the examples of all the saints who've gone before us in Hebrews 11, but here we're encouraged that we must fix our eyes on our faithful Savior, who is the great reward we receive at the finish line. This is not about just where we look for inspiration from an example standpoint. It's about where do you put your eyes as you are running this race that is going to require endurance, which tells you it is not always going to feel easy. Where do your eyes go? <clears throat> Have you ever heard the phrase, keep your eyes on the prize? Jesus is it. Jesus is the prize. We were made for God, and we will never experience what it means to be truly human until we are fully and finally restored in his glorious presence. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the reward. The greatest gift God gave us in sending Christ is giving us himself, in bridging the gap created between us and God because of our sin. The greatest God, gift God has ever given us is himself. What, what does it mean to be human? That's a question you're hearing thrown around a lot these days. What does it mean to be human? Does the Bible give us a comprehensive answer of what it means to be human? It does. To be human means to be a beloved son or daughter of God. I want you to know as we work through this text, to include daughters with the sons is, is not violating anything that the text intends. This is just... The, the, the son language is meant to talk about 
sons and daughters, okay? Just in case you were wondering about that. This isn't just for the guys, okay? This is sons and daughters. What does it mean to be a human? To be a beloved son or daughter of God and enjoy the relationship he made us for. That's what it means to be a human in its highest and most fully developed form. And anything else will, woefully, will fall woefully short. And our sad and constant scurrying in search of satisfaction is strong evidence of this reality. Why does there seem to be such a yearning and an aching in humanity to grasp hold of some sense of purpose, some sense of meaning? Is that, is that because we're broken? Where we go to try to find it is because we're broken. But grasping for that sense is because we were made for something greater than we are currently experiencing. We were made for uninhibited relationship with a perfect, holy, mighty Father. And everybody, whether they recognize this is what's going on or not, feels the ache. And that ache is good. And that ache is part of why we can't fall into a place where this world is able to satisfy us. It shouldn't be able to. There's not enough here to satisfy what it means to truly be human. Because to truly be human is to be a son or daughter of God and to enjoy the relationship that he made us for from the beginning. The prize of full restoration and perfect relationship with no trace of the separation that sin has caused. So let me say that again. The prize of full restoration and perfect relationship with no trace of the separation that sin has caused, that prize is the joy that Jesus had before him as he endured the cross. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Let's not misunderstand. The joy set before him was not the cross. We're given an intimate picture into the feelings of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane about the cross. To the degree that Jesus, filled with so much anxiety about what was coming, almost assuredly knowing the answer on the other side, but God in his great mercy allowed us to see even our Savior King pray a prayer like, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The key to the prayer, though, being the end. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And honestly, these, this first half of, of Hebrews 12, if, if, I, if you forget everything else, remember a good summary of what is taught here is exemplified in the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is hard. Lord, if there's any other way for this, if there's a way for this to not be this way, please. Yet, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Ultimately, trust in God's goodness, supremacy, sovereignty, and love for us. That's the only way you can pray that way. If you don't have full trust in God's goodness, sovereignty, love, and power, you can't pray a prayer like, Lord, I hate what's happening right now. This hurts. Please stop it. You could pray that much, but you couldn't end it with, nevertheless, I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. That requires 
the, the highest level of faith in God's character and in God's goodness and in his power. Our prize is him. His prize was us. And so empowered by love and an unquenchable desire, we can endure this race running towards the same goal our Savior did. That goal is us and him forever. It's a great encouragement to me that part of why Jesus is the author, finisher, author, perfecter of our faith, that he's run this race, part of what we're getting a glimpse to is what, as Jesus ran with endurance by faith, and and, and let's make sure we're clear about this, was Jesus God? Yes. Was Jesus man? Yes. How exactly does the hypostatic union work? I don't know. But God in his great sovereignty made sure that Jesus' experience as a human was legitimate. That he had to live by faith because we're going to have to live by faith. That he experienced real temptation because we're going to have to experience real temptation. That he experienced real hunger and thirst and struggle because we're going to have to experience those things. That he could run a race before us. That he could build the track and run the track. And it's not just that we can follow Jesus' example in how he ran, but why he ran. That our motivation can be the same as his. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That joy, being full, uninhibited relationship, was sent out of the way forever with us. And so we can run with the same goal in mind. Full, uninhibited relationship with him. Praise God. When our love and our desires are ordered properly... The pitiful little trappings of this world won't have near the appeal they so often do. Growing as Christians is, of course, about praying that our temptation towards sin decreases. But the best way for that to happen is that our desire for God increases. That'll help us if we get a hold of it. There's nothing wrong with praying, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lord, Help me to defeat temptation. There's nothing wrong with praying that. But we should, because of the example of Christ, pray at the same time, Lord, may my, may my tendency to go towards temptation decrease, but Lord, I know what's really going to help that happen is that my desire for you increase. My love for you increase. That's what's going to make these trappings and these temptations seem more and more foolish and of less value. That's what's going to help me not be tricked so easily, so easily entangled. When my eyes are fixed on Jesus, the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the love that we see in Christ, this little foolish stuff just doesn't have the appeal. It maybe once did. Praise God. Now this idea that he endured the cross despising the shame. The idea of shame discussed here, it's just one of the countless ways we can see Christ's love for us and thus have our affection stirred for him. I just encourage you towards not just thinking about this race in terms of trying to defeat temptation or, or, or for temptation to be decreased, but to understand that it is, it is when the glory of God's greatness eclipses those temptations and our desire for him increases. And what I'm saying is the idea that sh- the shame Christ endured is mentioned here, this is one of those things, if you're struggling to 
to genuinely have affection for Christ, a love that does motivate you to run with endurance, the, this idea of shame can help us to think, to think that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, worshipped by angels for all eternity, would humble himself to the point of being humiliated and hung on a cross. It's almost inconceivable to think that the God who made all things would let some of his creation treat him in that way for the joy set before him. That one that high would allow himself to be brought that low You can barely grasp how that could be possible with your mind. It doesn't fit any other paradigm we understand about how beings work. But what we see in it is why God stands apart from all other false gods. And it wasn't just humiliation because he was hung on a cross. He wasn't just bearing the wrath of God and just punishment of death on the cross. He wasn't just doing that, though he was doing that. Sin deserves the wrath of God. Somebody was going to have to take the wrath. And every person will either put faith in the fact that Jesus took it or they will take it. But sin, God's righteous judgment against sin is his wrath. God, if you, have a, if you want a God that's not angry at sin, dear friend, I don't think you've thought about it long enough. And I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm trying to humbly submit to you. You don't want a God that is not angry at sin. Because then you have a God that doesn't love. You have a God that doesn't care. The final form of hate is indifference. An idea we will explore as we move through these verses in even more depth. It wasn't just bearing the wrath of God and the just punishment of death on the cross. Jesus was stripped naked and bore all the shame of being fully exposed so that we could be fully exposed and yet be completely free of shame. I'm so thankful for that. It's not just that I'm forgiven in Christ. It's not just that I can be sure that he loves me because of what I see happening on the cross. Jesus bore all the shame so that I can be honest with him, with myself, with you, and I don't have to be crippled by the shame that would always come if he had not bore it for me. He didn't just take the wrath of God, he took the shame that I deserve to be weighed down with I don't remember if at the beginning of this sermon I listed shame as an encumbrance. I think I said insecurities, but surely shame is an encumbrance and a weight around the neck of so many that slows them from running a race of faithfulness to God with endurance. You don't have to because he bore it. He took that part of the punishment as well because the wages of sin is death, but also clearly shame comes along with sin. That, that would be what, that, that's how it should be. It should be that we are full of shame for our sin. It should be that we feel the full weight of death upon us as a result of sin. That's what would be just if God had not decided to let Jesus stand in as our atoning sacrifice and for us to be credited righteousness if we would trust in God's provision. 
And how are we credited that righteousness? It's by faith. It's by confident trust in and obedience to what God has said. And what God has said is, you can't save yourself, but I'm going to do it. Will you trust me? What a deal, friends. You're not getting a better one anywhere you look. It, 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 you can barely even... It takes the help of the Holy Spirit of God to aliven your heart and mind to even be able to, to contemplate how this thing works. Grace by faith is so counterintuitive. That's why the Bible talks about people mocking the gospel as if it's foolishness because at, at, on its face it is. What do you mean I can be the perpetrator? And just trust that because someone else loved me so much, they paid the price. I, I, get, I get to be free. What? Show me somewhere else that works in the world, anywhere. It doesn't. But that's why he took us through Hebrews 11 before <laughs> bringing us here. To show us that God, the way God has done this, is, it, it has always been, his design has always been, that restoration relationship was going to be by faith. And remember, I told you, it was, it was really a lack of faith that caused the problem to begin with in the garden. It has always been by faith. E even if the curse had never happened, it was by faith that we were in relationship with God. It was, it was when Adam and Eve did not have confident trust in and a willingness to obey God and what he had said, a lack of faith, that all of the trouble began. A lack of faith started the problem. Faith is what's going to fix it. This is how God has ordained the universe to work and the relationship he has with us to work. It's a relationship based on trust and love. Not the demands of some cold dictator, but a father, a good father. <clears throat> Verses three and four. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. It's important that we don't relegate Jesus to only a good example as the forerunner, author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. It's important we don't think he is only a good moral example. There are some that try to relegate Jesus to a place of good moral teacher and good example of maybe how we should live. That will not do. We cannot put him in a bucket of only example, but it would be a shame, it would be, it would be a tragedy to not include the way we view Jesus as a perfect example. And that's exactly what we're being encouraged to hear. Consider him who endured such hostilities by sinners against himself, so you will not grow weary and lose heart, right? And so particularly, this, this whole set of verses helps us with a, a robust biblical theology of struggle and suffering in the Christian life and, and endurance and seeing this as a race. The particular struggle that these saints were dealing with was oftentimes persecution specifically for the fact that they loved Jesus and were serving him. And so he's encouraging them to see you know, they, they, he endured. Jesus, if Jesus can endure hostility by sinners against himself, remember that he went first. Remember that when you, have, when you are dealt with unfairly, when you have hostility towards you as a result of having faith in God, this is not something that our master did not also endure. And so 
reach for his example. See that God was faithful in bringing him to the finish line. Remember that, go back through Hebrews 11. How many times was there hostility (laughs) towards those saints as a result of them trusting and obeying God? Consider that when you're tempted to feel like things are unfair, when you're tempted to sit back into some type of victim mentality, to, to start to throw questions of fairness and, God, why would you allow this? That, that's part of why we have Hebrews 11. That's why we have the crown jewel of examples being Christ. You have never been dealt with more unfairly than Christ. You never have. You never will. Because he was the perfect sinless lamb of God and took the totality of the punishment for humankind sin. If anyone ever got a raw deal, it was Christ, and he chose it because of his great love for us. So we don't sit and feel sad for him, but we should be able to draw strength from his example. And that's what we're being encouraged to hear. And you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Jesus held nothing back in his great love for us. He went all the way in his resistance against sin. And the the beauty of that verse is it's going to stand. Because if you decided... I'm, I am going to, I'm going to sacrifice myself to try to solve the sin problem. You, you've gone off the rails. You're not doing that for God. You've become confused. No one else will have to strive to the point of shedding blood to defeat sin because Jesus did. We can trust in his striving to that degree. It won't be that we need to offer some kind of sacrifice physically Uh, in blood like he did. Blood was required by the old covenant system for the atonement of sin. Uh, Leviticus says that life is in the blood. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And we've, we've spent copious amounts of time throughout this series talking about that relationship of blood and atonement, sacrifice, why that's there. I know that's creepy for some people. I know it's hard to grasp. You know, I've told you many times the story, the first time I ever gathered with God's people, I was 10 years old, never, didn't know anything about anything. They sang nothing but the blood, and I was so freaked out. Like, what are all these weird people talking about? Why are we singing about blood? This is jacked. Okay? So I get it. Um, if, and if you, if you need help with understanding why blood's in the mix, why there had to be the shed blood of animals under the old covenant system and why Jesus had to shed his blood. Uh, you can refer back to earlier parts of this sermon series and or uh, reach out. We'd be happy to talk to you about that. If, if I get down into that, we'll be in serious trouble in terms of time. So we're going to keep moving, all right? Verses 5 and 6 says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In most of your Bibles, this will be capitalized, okay? This is because this is a quotation, from the Hebrew scriptures. My son, do not, and that's his point. You've forgotten this exhortation. This is from Proverbs chapter three. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He's reminding them that this is something that we should not be surprised by the discipline of the Lord. We should not be surprised by the need for endurance. This is not something God just kind of popped up and surprised us with. This has been a consistent theme of what it's going to mean to walk by faith in a world that has been broken by sin. There is going to be need for endurance. This will not be a leisurely skate down 
a slight hill. It's a race. We're going to have to run. We're going to need endurance. We're going to have to trust God for all of it. Okay? Now, verses, we looked at 5 and 6. I wanted to separate that out and and focus on the fact that that is a a quotation from the Hebrew Scriptures. But really, 5 through 11, okay, introduces this idea and, and, and kind of encapsulates this idea of the discipline of the Lord and how we should think about that. And so I, I want to make sure, I want to start with the key to the whole thing. Before we start getting into these verses, there's, there's a key phrase here that, that should shape our thinking about the discipline of the Lord. And that key phrase is found in verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, talking about earthly fathers, as seemed best to them. But he, that being God, disciplines us for our good. For our good. The discipline of the Lord is motivated by his love for us, and it is for our good. That is a key to the way we understand the discipline of our Heavenly Father. The discipline is not from God's wrath, but from God's love. And this is super hard for us to grab a hold of for many reasons. One is probably the sins of maybe those who raised us. I'm not trying to come at anybody's parents, but everybody's parents at some point did some discipline, not purely out of love and for the good of the child. Any parents in here that have done a totally perfect job only ever disciplining out of love and for the good of the child as the base motivation driving the reaction? Anybody ever done perfect of that in here? Good, you passed class. Really glad no one shot their hand up on that one. I kind of led you to the right place, hopefully with vocal tone, but no, of course we haven't. And that's my point. This is hard for us to grab a hold of because our experience with discipline is human. We've been disciplined by those who raised us, and many of us have had the opportunity to uh, be on the giving end of discipline, and we know our own sinfulness and, 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 and fickleness and inability for our motives to be perfect in the administration of discipline, okay? But God is perfect and always only disciplines for our good and out of his love for us. It is not the discipline of the Lord is not based, it has nothing to do with his wrath. We're on a racetrack. The discipline of the Lord is to help us stay on the track, not to kick us off the track. Not to hurt us, but to help us get to the finish line. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. The discipline of the Lord for the believer comes from his love for you. The motivate, it is not that you finally poked the bear enough times and God finally from the throne is like, oh, okay, that's it. I'm nailing that one. You're getting it, boy. That's not it. If you experience the discipline of the Lord, it is a calculated, measured administration of discipline by a perfect father who loves you. And his wrath is not in view as he disciplines you. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ fully and totally. For the believer, the discipline of God has nothing to do with his wrath. Is that, good, is that good news for you? I hope it is. And many of us stay confused about that. And we need God's help to not be. Because it would change the way we interact with the discipline of the Lord. The way we think about endurance for the race. 
He will discipline you, but it is for your good and, and the way a coach would to help a runner continue the race. Okay? <clears throat> and this is a powerful principle that should guide parenting in all relationships. Our model for parenting is God our perfect father. We are going to fail miserably, probably often, at having perfect motivations of love and the good of the person, our blessing, our little blessings, our little children, okay? And sometimes you just want to kick them in the back of the head, not, not for their good. I'm not thinking about that I love you. You're acting so dumb, I want to put the tip of my boot on the back of your head. Knock it off, right? But that's, that's part of why James says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. See, too many of us like, oh, well, Jesus flipped tables. It's okay to be angry. It is okay to be angry, but it is not okay to give discipline or correction out of anger as the motivation. It is not okay. That is sinful. And that's not, yeah, isn't it? And that's not just with our kids. Because there's need for correction and accountability and hard conversations with friends, with spouses. So if we were to slow our roll a little bit, and anytime we need to go into something that feels anything like correction, discipline, encouragement in our race, if we were to stop and think, okay, before I open this food hole right here and start letting words come out of it, what is motivating this? Am, am I saying this because I'm angry? And, and here's what I'm saying. Sometimes you are justified in being angry. Anger is not wrong. Sometimes God is angry at sin. It's okay for us to be angry at sin, but we do not move in that anger in the administration of discipline or in dealing with people around difficult things. Anger should not be the motivation pushing us. And sometimes that's true for some of us, isn't it? Sometimes we're not going to say something until you tick us off enough, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of justification about, well, you know, I, the righteous anger of the Lord and this and that. No, it's not. No, it's not. If you need to go have a difficult conversation with your kids, with your spouse, with your friend, with your boss, with your coworker, with the loud mouth at the gas station, I don't care. Stop and ask yourself, is, is my motivation in moving towards this difficult conversation out of love and for the good of that person. It may also, reconciliation and restoration, that's also for my good. That's okay that that motive is in there. But am I thinking about their good in the way I'm going to go approach this and the words I'm going to use and the tone I'm going to have? Am I being a peacemaker or am I just finally fed up? And so now this kid is going to be grounded for a month or whatever because they finally pushed my buttons enough. God is a perfect father. We can learn a lot from him. And thank God there is grace for us when we don't nail this in all of our relationships. Whew, that's good news. Man, grace raises the bar high on the expectations, man, doesn't it? Woo, buddy. We thought eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and all that was tough. We thought, we thought the Ten Commandments was rough. Buddy, talk about, I need to think about the base motivations of my heart as I go into conflict, discipline, and difficult conversations. Mmm, goodness. Anybody realizing how much you need the Holy Spirit's help 
every single minute, then it's working. It's working. That's, that's what the Word of God is leading us to. I need Jesus. I need the Spirit's help every single minute. As soon as you start thinking, yeah, I pretty much got this handled, you're losing grip of the point. Run back to the Scriptures. Find somebody that loves you to tell you the truth. Hallelujah. The, the discipline of God's help us finish the race, not kick us off the track. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Let me read this. To, starting in verse 7, let me read this to you. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay? He, definitely on Team Jesus. Okay? Guy that wrote many. God used him to write much of the New Testament. Okay? Here's what he said. An experience he had. Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, on behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When we think about the discipline of the Lord, friends, in, in one sense, you could think of it as this racetrack Jesus built, the beginning of which is whenever we come to the place of realizing we need him. We plead in faith for his grace to be applied to us. We realize I need a savior because I'm a sinner. That's where the race starts. And that track, the finish line, is the final fulfillment, stepping into eternity, all sin and striving ceases at that point. That's the finish line. That's the prize. Uninhibited relationship with God. But the track in the middle, you, you could almost imagine that God in his great love has lined that track with thick brambles and thorns. And you might think, oh, that's, isn't that kind of mean? Oh, no. Not if you believe and how important it is to stay on the track, and what happens if you get off the track. God has put those thorns there, and, and many of us have scrapes from touching them. Some of us a lot. Some of us have over into the thorns and rolled around and have the scars to prove it. But is it not the love of God to you that those thorns are there? There's a warning. Because Romans 1 talks about a real stubbornness, a real, a real persistent desire to be off the track, that, that there, is a, there is a way that you can, you can persist in your stubborn rebellion and, and, and the wrath of God be that he'll just let you go, that you get past the thorns. But past the thorns might as well be Chernobyl. All that's out there is death. You won't last long. That's not where you want to be. You could decide that there's thorns on the side of the track because God is mean and wants to hurt you. Or you can humbly acknowledge that you were made for the track and the track was made for you and veering off of it will lead to destruction. And so a good father would put something that would get in your way. Isn't this why we shut doors and put baby gates up to block stairs from little ones? I mean, we get this, don't we? This isn't that complicated. 
What, what kind of father, what kind of mother would someone be if, if their little baby is heading over to the basement steps and they just go, oh, well, I hope they figure it out. Well, I don't want to make them upset by telling them they can't go down there and exercise their autonomy. I'd hate to get in the way of that. No, man. If you love that baby, you're not going to let that baby take a header down the steps and dunk, 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 dunk. Destruction's down the steps for that baby. Its head is still soft, man. It's bad. <laughs> you may not make it. So we put up a baby gate. We put boundaries in place. Because we want to hurt little baby? No. Because we love them. If we can get that, if we can figure that much out, then why wouldn't we expect that of a good, perfect father? Of course, we should. And this is what verses 7 and 8 are pointing us towards. What kind of loving parent watches that baby crawl towards the stairs and makes no effort to stop them? They wouldn't. Now, in order for us to, to grab a hold of this, we of course have to acknowledge our limited vantage point. Some of you may be bristle, understanding that if we, if we carry the analogy out here, God is the father and you're the baby. And maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't like the idea of thinking anybody should need to treat you like a baby. But humility is a real key here. Understanding that we have blind spots and we do not exist at a vantage point that God does. Do you not find it interesting? I find it so interesting that when Paul consulted with the Lord about the thorn in the flesh, it was not even that he had been given that because he had sinned. It was because God knew there was a potential for him to get into trouble. And so God got in the way to remind him. The, the, the concern was God had dealt with Paul in such a way, poured out so much revelation, was using him so mightily for the purposes of his kingdom that Paul would get tempted to exalt himself. That's what the scripture said. And so getting ahead of that, and you got to just decide. Paul obviously had a blind spot. There was a potential that even all the, all the revelation Paul had, go through Read Romans and Ephesians and all these incredible theological works from Paul. Read the stories of him by faith being shipwrecked and, and surviving and, and standing before rulers and preaching the gospel. This guy, if, if anybody had faith, if anybody had insight, it, it said part of the issue was the, the amazing revelation God had granted him. But, but apparently even he had blind spots. And what God did to make sure those blind spots didn't end up leading him into the destruction of self-exaltation was hitting him with a thorn. Now, the, the supremely arrogant approach to what I just said would be to say, oh, well, God can't come up with some other way to keep us out of trouble. If that's where you're at, dear friend, please, that, that is the kind of pride that will lead to death. Please realize you are but a mere human. And there is a God that made us. And you don't know everything. You don't see everything. And the quicker you realize you have blind spots, the more you'll be able to appreciate a God that doesn't and is looking out for you. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. <clears throat> I 
Sometimes the discipline of the Lord isn't just about you. Sometimes, and and Hebrews 11 shows us that. If we go through and we think through those examples and what these believers did by faith, and and then we think that God inspired the writer of Hebrews to write those stories down and, and to show us that it was by faith Noah did what he did. By faith, Abraham did what he did. You know, on, on down the list. Part of what was in the infinitely brilliant mind of God as he took those people in those times through those situations by faith was that later on, he was going to inspire the writer of Hebrews to write it down so that we could draw encouragement from it. Part of the experience, why, why would why would God even allow Satan to be having a conversation with Jesus in the wilderness? Because it almost seems like a waste of time. Is, but part of it was for us, so that we could see the reality of Jesus' humanity, that he was genuinely tempted, and yet also see what it looks like by faith and with the power of the word of God to push back against temptation. Much of the experiences that Old Testament saints had was so that later generations could see God's faithfulness. Much of the experience of Jesus' life, God designed it largely. There were specific purposes and things he was doing with the people in that time. God loved them and cared about them, but God is always playing 4D chess when the rest of us are barely getting checkers. Okay? He knew future generations would also benefit from the accounts of Jesus' life, his words, the way he dealt with people. He, he loved the woman at the well, and he cared about her, but he knew that when we come later and see how he dealt with her, it would have a shaping effect upon our race. And I'm just picking that as an example. Go, go through the Gospels and look at all the examples, right? And so what I'm trying to encourage you towards is that principle is still working today, okay? Scripture, I'm not saying Scripture will be written about the lives we are living today. I don't know. Maybe there's an angel up there keeping records. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll rejoice for eons over, uh, as we are able to look back from a different vantage point, all that God coordinated and did and was working even amongst us. Now, I don't know. I I think we should rejoice in those things when they're visible in the here and now. We should be thankful when we see the orchestrating hand of God doing what he does in faithfulness. For sure we should. Draw encouragement from that. But sometimes God will place hurdles on the track, and it's not... The race isn't getting harder in the moment because you've veered off into the thorns out of foolishness. Sometimes God will put a hurdle there, and sometimes it's because he wants to teach you something with the hurdle, right? Sometimes he's trying to drive home that principle that Paul so eloquently put out for us in Romans 5 that we don't just rejoice in our salvation, but in our tribulation. We rejoice in our tribulation. You get in a, Do you hear how weird we are as followers of Jesus? We are, man, we're weird. We don't just rejoice in salvation, we rejoice in tribulation. Because tribulation gives way to perseverance. Perseverance develops character. And at the end of that whole process, what you have is hope. A genuine hope. Because why? Because the love of God has been poured out upon us in Christ Jesus. If you'll memorize that sequence and apply it to life, the the temptation we often have to discouragement because there's a hurdle the, the temptation to discouragement becomes much less powerful.
We don't have to be discouraged by hurdles. We can see them for what they are. We can even, as wild as it is, rejoice, knowing that God is maybe teaching me something, or God knows as he, as he because here's the thing, p- part of the reason why I'm staying encouraged is if, if I don't have the equipment right now, my legs are tired, or let's just say, you, you, you know, I have no vertical, okay, like period, never have, you know, maybe I could touch the bottom of the rim at the height of my athletic prowess, that is not now, uh, it was many years ago, um, but I don't even think I can touch the rim today, okay, so a hurdle in real life, that'd be a problem for me, I don't have the equipment to do it, but, but in this sense, on this track, if I don't have it current, what I need to get over the hurdle, God has promised, as I run up with my feeble attempt and my weak legs, if I need it, he'll grab me and he'll get me there. Whatever I'm lacking, he'll make up the difference. So, so we can move forward in confidence. So that's, that's another reason not to be discouraged by the hurdle. But we also have to remember, the hurdle may not just be about teaching us something. It may be about God wanting to take us across that hurdle. Because down the track a bit, we're going to find someone who has sat down and is crying and discouraged because they, they don't feel like they can get over it. And so we can stop and we can say, hey man, I just saw one of these. Let's trust the Lord. We can get, here's how we can get through this. I know you maybe don't believe it based on your experience, but I can look you in your eyes right now and tell you, if we run at this thing and jump in faith, God will get us over it. Sometimes it's not about you. Strengthen the hands that are weak. Sometimes God lets Satan put hurdles on the track to make a fool out of him when he gives us the strength to jump over him. Sometimes God just delights in making Satan look foolish. And sometimes he likes to use us to do it. And I say, here I am. I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. Let's show for the billionth time how foolish it is to stand in opposition to a God this mighty, this good, this loving, this sovereign. Let's show him again, Lord. Use me. And, and, and I'm not going to say that never is the case, man, that we, we, get, it, we get all up in our own heads and, and we're not operating in faith. I know I've jumped up at some hurdles in my own strength, caught my shins on them, and, and taken a tumble. That's, that happens. But even that's instructive for me. That's for my good. God knew I was going to do that, and he's reminding me, son, you need me for hurdles. What are you doing? You're not an all-star athlete here. <laughs> okay. Obviously, we're stretching the analogy a little bit. This is all, you know, none of this is talking about a real race on a real track, but I can understand the principles because I know I would struggle with hurdles in the physical. So it helps me. If you're an all-star athlete, this may be harder for you to get a hold of. So come see me afterwards and I'll try to talk you through it. Hurdles are easy. I don't know what he means. Well, bully for you, hurdle jumper. The rest of us get, get it, okay? <laughs> the rest of us understand what this means. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a short moment here, that's, that's really, that brings us to kind of the end of, of the principles that, that uh, I think really need to be drawn out of these 13 verses, um, but I <clears throat> felt compelled of the Lord this morning just thinking and, and praying about preaching this text and thinking about some of the things that are happening to make some uh, practical real life kind of to the minute application. Um, the idea is the idea here is an endurance. It's endurance in a race. It's buckling up for the reality of challenges in this life, uh, and 
keeping a perspective that uh, we have a good father who is for us and that we can trust kind of no matter what hardships come, okay? And uh, there's, <clears throat> there's potential for this upcoming week to get a little wild. Um, some of you already will have been keyed into this based on what you pay attention to. Some of you, this will be the first time you've heard it. And I'm just using it as an example. This, because this is a little bit out of the pocket, I just, I just believe the Lord wants me to talk about this to help drive this, this point home, but give us a real-life chance to apply it this week, potentially if things go a certain way as well. If, if, if what happens after I talk about what I'm about to talk about is that you are seized up in fear because it's the first time you heard it, you've missed the whole point of the sermon, <laughs> and I, I need you to think about it again, okay? That's not the point. The point is the opposite of that. But Friday, towards the end of the week, news came out that the 16th largest bank in the U.S. was unable to pay, basically, uh, the totality of, the, of what depositors had put in, okay? So that's called a lot of things, but a bank default, okay? And I don't know what you pay attention to, I don't know what you've heard about it, but there are already those talking about the potential systemic effects of something like this. A bank this large, defaulting, you had a bunch of companies that had millions, some billions of dollars in that bank that now can't get it, and so then there's a cascading effect possibly throughout the financial system. Uh, and so there's, and the other thing I want you to remember, there, <clears throat> bad news sells, and so there are those who, with not enough information to say it yet, are already predicting, you know, they're showing pictures of bread lines from the depression and, and showing pictures of people standing in line in bank, at banks in California trying to get money out, not able to. But that fear impulse grabs our attention and it'll glue our eyes and we live in an attention economy. And, and so there's a reason, there's a motivation for people to have you jazzed up, okay? But on the other end of this, I just want to mention that, but I also want you to know I'm not standing the the place of the false prophets of the Old Testament who were declaring peace, peace when there is no peace. Because here's the reality. One of a couple things can happen as markets open up Monday and business begins to move forward again. Either this is a nothing burger, <laughs> which oftentimes things like this are, or some really painful things could, a domino effect could happen. And some really hard things could happen. And it could have really widespread effects. Either way, these verses should help us. Either way, the principles that God and his great sovereignty knew that on this Sunday in 2023, this church would be in the first half of Hebrews 12. If we take this and actually apply it, because here's, here's what I know. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Some of you follow the Twitter feeds of the doomsayers. Some of you are already kind of freaked out about what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of you, literally, this is the first you're hearing about it. And it doesn't really matter where you're at on that spectrum. We all, all and, and, and even if this bank failure thing and all the potential that that has, I mean... You know, for months now, people have been screaming about it. World War III is coming. Here's, here's all the evidence that things are going to get really bad and nukes and this and that. And friends, 
we need to, we need to ahead of time, have built into the way we think and what we believe, preparation for when, when bad things come. If, if, if it's, if things start to unravel, hurdles start to appear on the track, that's when we start, start to think about these things or start to apply faith to these things. That's, that's going to be really problematic. That's going to be a lot of shins on hurdles. We need to, we need to be a people who understand that running, that living a life in a world broken by sin as followers of Jesus is not going to be a gentle skate down a slope. There, and and this, what we're talking about is broader, a broader idea of, of a theology of struggle and a theology of suffering. The more, the more specific application here is suffering specifically for the name of Christ, okay? And, and most of us have not had a real vibrant experience with that. I'm not saying none of you have ever had a bad experience because someone knew you were a follower of Jesus. I'm sure some of you have. And I've experienced that in lightweight versions as well, but not like these brothers and sisters were, okay? Not like first, second century Christians where, you know, either you throw this pinch of incense in here as, as a sign of your worship to Caesar or off to the Colosseum you go and we're going to watch you get eaten by lions type stuff. We're not there. We may never get there. I have little children, so I hope we don't. But I think it's good for us to think, what if we did? I think it's really good for us to think, what if really hard financial times came? What, am I, what kind of questions am I going to have for God? What kind of things am I going to think about whether he's a good father, a provider, or whether I'm going to trust in him? And so I'm just asking you this week, remember these verses. Remember Philippians. That we should rejoice, I say it again, rejoice, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, and here's the kicker, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that peace, the word says, is a peace that surpasses understanding. That's a real important part. Because... There's a bunch of people right now clamoring and banging and telling you they understand and, and they can tell you exactly what's going to happen this upcoming week with the financial system. Nobody knows. They're all full of it. Bullpucky, that's what I meant. They're full of bullpucky. Okay? They don't know. Nobody knows. And God is sovereign. But we can rejoice through any difficulty and we can have peace that surpasses understanding. I can't tell you whether this upcoming week is going to end up being a nothing burger around all this bank stuff or there's going to be some real hard times coming. I can't tell you, but I can stand here in full conviction and say, friends, we can have peace that surpasses understanding. I don't need to know exactly what's going to happen to know my God is a good father. And I have every reason to trust him, no matter what happens. Praise God. I hope that's real for you this week and next week and the next week as the new doom is <laughs> laid out before us, whatever it may be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for Hebrews chapter 12. Thank you for the truth that this life living as a Christian in a world that is broken by sin is not a leisurely stroll. It is a race and we have need of endurance. Thank you that 
The endurance you have asked us to have, the endurance you are encouraging us toward, is something you have made provision for. This is not something we have to summon up from our own strength. Help us to remember the words of the Apostle Paul that he's able to glory in his weaknesses, that he's able to rejoice in the fact that his strength is found in you alone. May these truths seat themselves within our hearts and minds. May it not just be something we ascend to intellectually. May these not be truths that we just can nod our head at as we are gathered among God's people. May these truths be operative. May the faith to believe these things actually affect how we think and live and move in this world, Lord. And may all of that be for your glory and for our good. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.